This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, a show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and uh, I hope everyone is having a great Thanksgiving weekend, uh, restful, shopping, catching up on things. I hate to bring up a bad subject, but i got to bring up the subject of diet. Now, when I say diet, I don't necessarily mean on losing weight. Okay, We associate right away diet with, oh my gosh, i got to lose weight. Okay. Diet is important because what we're learning more and more is food is medicine. And let me explain. We find that diets themselves can be an excellent treatment for many illnesses, especially chronic illnesses. Matter of fact, one recent study showed 60% of Americans have a chronic health problem that can be partially managed and treated with diet. That's a lot of people. So what kind of things are we talking about? We're talking about hypertension, high blood pressure, diabetes, pre-diabetes, high cholesterol. And even some people are saying we could get a better grip on depression by altering our diet. And it's really important when you think about it, the things we put in our mouth, whether it be aspirin, medication, or food, are all going to fuel the engine of our body. So we really have to start thinking about the importance of food and healthy food in order to manage our medical problems. Now, specifically, so if we we just look at hypertension, uh, you know, we have good data from the DASH diet, okay? And the DASH diet was a study done um, since 1997, Diet Approaches to Stop Hypertension. And it's been widely researched. Everybody has looked at the data. And essentially, it really just tries to get everybody's sodium down. So if you have hypertension, you're familiar with sodium adding to that hypertension. So with that, the DASH diet, just looking at that and implementing part of it. So it's not saying... You need to deprive yourself at the holiday, but you need to make some simple steps. So some of those simple simple steps may be, you know, just not using the salt shaker, okay? Or instead of putting two sugars in your coffee or tea, put one in and try to work towards a goal of altering your diet to get to better health. And let's face it. Come New Year's, everybody wants to lose weight. But what I really would like people to start thinking about now between Thanksgiving and Christmas is how they're going to start implementing some of the simple things. You'll be surprised how adaptive your body is if you start using less salt that your taste buds will get used to that. This day in medicine, November 30th, 1603, Dr. William Gilbert died. This is an interesting guy, Dr. William Gilbert. I mean, we're talking 1603, and he was not only a physician but a physicist, and he looked at the combinations 
of electricity and magnetism and the human body. He's actually considered like the father of electrical engineering. Now, when we look at medicine today, so much is based on magnetism, especially with respect to the human brain. Let's face it, magnetic resonance imaging, MRI, it's a giant magnet. And by using that magnet, as it applies to the brain itself, especially the brain itself, it can give you phenomenal images of the brain. So this fellow, Dr. Gilbert, was thinking about this in 1603 and really was leading the way with some interesting ideas that we've expanded upon today. The American Academy of Neurology is now putting forth a policy to screen people over the age of 65 for memory problems. And what it's advocating for is when you go for your annual physical, that you're going to be asked some mental status questions and how you think. It's not your doctor trying to trap you or trick you. But it's important to identify memory problems early. Why? Because a lot of times there are treatable causes. Things like sleep problems can lead to difficulty with memory, depression, hearing disorders. Many people are diagnosed with dementia and really just have a hearing disorder. Also, the side effects of any medication you may be on or a condition known as mild cognitive impairment, MCI, which can lead to Alzheimer's disease. But you want to get out in front of that. Now, Hartford Healthcare, I work at Hartford Healthcare now um, one day a week. And being on staff at a Hartford Healthcare hospital means that when you turn 70, all physicians must be screened yearly for any cognitive deficits. You know, when I first heard that, my thought was, okay, this is how they're getting the old guys out and make room for younger people. But I spoke to one of the docs who I know, a good friend, who did go through the profit. He's 70. And he said it's actually very helpful. Um, you meet with a geriatrician uh, who goes over, does some memory testing, but also talks to you about your future, your hobbies, uh, you know, trying to ease that transition that we're all going to come to in changing our career and retiring and making sure we're ready for that. So it, it really became a professional discussion among peers. So uh, he thought it was actually a great uh, discussion and very useful. And let's face it, is there anybody against that, that a doctor should be screened for cognitive impairment? I, I'm not against it, and I am a doctor. I mean, it makes sense. I think we ought to screen a lot of other people, too, who are in responsible positions, right? Uh, when you think of airline pilots, I, I think they screen them already. It's obvious to me that we don't screen politicians on, on either side. This is not a, uh, a partisan view, but it, I think we need to screen these politicians. They're making big decisions for this country. When you think that all these candidates, uh, many of the candidates, are over the age of 70, Somebody needs to sit down with them. Uh, so I, I think it's important that we do screening, and the American Academy of Neurology has really taken a lead on that. The flu outbreak is here early. Uh, we think uh, our, uh, the, the projection is the flu shot's going to work pretty well this year. And we know that because it hits Australia. I didn't know this. It hits Australia before us. 
So we can tell how severe it's going to be as it moves this way. And it's already been pretty severe. I know many people who have already had the flu this early in the season. So, as always, get the flu shot. But don't think that's the only thing that's going to keep you from getting the flu. I mean, it's part of the puzzle, really, when it comes to avoiding the flu. Wash your hands. Use Purell and these other things um, that you can use to uh, these antibacterial agents on your hands to really sanitize as much as you can. Avoid contact as much as you can. I know everybody wants a kiss and hug when you get the family together for holidays, but uh, maybe a little less kissing and hugging. And also, if you're going to be on a plane, I know I've said this before, I do it. I'm not embarrassed by doing it. I wipe the seat down. I wipe the the seat belt down, the tray especially. Uh, they sell these little packets. They cost a couple of bucks uh, with tissue-like things that are soaked in either chlorine, uh, Clorox, or uh, Purell, and you wipe it down. Matter of fact, I was doing it uh, on a flight recently, and the flight attendant saw me doing it, and she just looked at me and said, smart man. Uh, so, uh, and, and I have noticed that I have been sick less in terms of getting off of a plane uh, by since I've been doing that. We're going to take a short break. And then my studio guest today is Dr. Stephanie Alessi LaRosa. Dr. Alessi LaRosa is an MD, and she also has a master's degree in public health. She's the associate director of sports neurology at the Iyer Neuroscience Center at Hartford Hospital. She's also my daughter. So we're going to have a discussion today on sports neurology and the role of sports neurologists, and especially we're going to focus in on youth sports. The phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You can also email me live on the program at info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And today it gives me great pleasure to introduce my studio guest, my daughter, Dr. Stephanie Alessi LaRosa. Uh, she is the Associate Director of Sports Neurology at the Iyer Neuroscience Center at Hartford Hospital and Hartford Healthcare System. Uh, she is an MD and uh, mass has a master's degree in public health. Steph, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Steph, let's talk about um, our investment here, uh, your education, uh, where you went to college, medical school, uh, residency, fellowship. Give people a little bit of an insight uh, behind what it takes to become a neurologist and specifically a sports neurologist in this day and age. Sure. I uh, started out uh, in college at uh, Sacred Heart University in uh, Fairfield, Connecticut, and uh, I majored in biology and neuroscience concentration there. And then I went on to St. George's University in Grenada of the West Indies. Uh, it's uh, near Trinidad and Tobago and Venezuela. And uh, I spent three years on the island there, uh, one year of my master's in public health. And then I uh, completed the first two years of medical school there and uh, completed my clinical rotations, uh, all the clinical portion of medical school in Brooklyn, New York, um, in uh, the Brooklyn uh, Hospital Center there. 
And uh, now I've I've come back to Connecticut, and I did my uh, residency in neurology for four years at uh, University of Connecticut and Hartford Hospital. And uh, once I completed that, I went to Michigan uh, for one year and completed uh, the fellowship uh, in sports neurology specifically, which uh, is my subspecialty. A couple of questions. When I talk to young people today about going to medical school who may have the grades and the aptitude and the desire to do it, the biggest thing they say is, uh, I don't want to put that much time into it. Now, you've obviously outlined a lot of time. Do you have any regrets for the amount of time that you've put into it and where you are today? Absolutely not. Uh, was uh, It went fast, honestly, uh, now that I think about it. And uh, it's been totally worth the, the ride. And, uh, you know, traveling around a little bit, uh, it, it's it's been great. I, I really loved it. I, I initially wanted to do physical therapy, and I did change my mind in college. And I never looked back. So uh, for me, it, it was the best decision. And I, I recommend everybody to, to do it if they have any inkling of, of wanting to be a doctor. It's interesting that you mentioned the ride, okay? You enjoyed the ride. And that's what I try to tell people is that it's not like you're locked in a classroom all the time. You're meeting new people, traveling to different countries, and you're really it's really a process. And you grow to enjoy the process. Uh, so it, it's really not that onerous at all. At least I never found it, and I'm glad it's not changed today. Um you have a master's degree in public health. Has, has that helped you? Do you think that's been an advantage as you've gone through not just your medical education, but now in practice, having an idea of public health? Absolutely. So public health uh, was always important to me. And now choosing to go into sports neurology where the number one thing I see is concussions, and it's a, obviously a major public health issue, was really a great fit for, for me and what I want to do with, with my career. Um, but it has helped me to have a master's degree also, I think, even in the uh, residency process and you know um, taking the next step. I think it, it did set me apart from other applicants and such as well. Um, but but it does give a preventive sort of perspective on on medicine uh, a little bit more than than just the typical um, medical school education would. So you brought up a good topic, and that is concussion and looking at concussion itself and your experience in public health. How big a problem is it? I mean, I, I, nobody's really been able to wrap their hands around this. They've said, you know, 3.8 million athletes or people, athletes every year will have it. But we're starting, I think my experience in you has been, it's probably a lot higher now. Hmm. Um, have you seen this growing trend and why do you think the trend has grown? I think recognition has been the number one reason. Uh, you know, there's just been a ton of hype, obviously, from the media, um, and uh, research coming out has been increased as well, uh, drawing a lot of uh, you know notoriety sort of to the topic. Uh, but also the education has improved about it and, and being able to recognize concussion has also gone up. Uh, but also the fear of a concussion uh, has risen as well, which, uh, you know, I think is something we'll talk more about. But but it's really uh, caused, you know, overdiagnosis of concussion as well. So we're kind of balancing out uh, in my field of trying to balance what is 
concussion, what isn't a concussion, you know, and not every hit to the head is a concussion and, and really thinking about the situation. Um, but, but certainly the numbers have gone up and, you know, rightfully so. I think it's, it's been this kind of hyped up, but also uh, more recognition. Again, you know, I, I, it's interesting because I tell people when I have to give a talk that, you know, when I went to medical school and did my residency some 40 years ago, uh, we never, I never heard the word concussion more than five times throughout medical school. And now you can't really open a book or turn on the TV without hearing the word concussion. And But just switching gears, you see a lot of other patients. I mean, people with other problems. Can you give our listeners a little bit of a sample of problems you see in athletes other than concussion and head injury? Sure. So I certainly see those those things that are neurologic caused by sports, but also I, I see a lot of things that are uh, just neuro- neurology in general that occur in athletes. So migraines in athletes, um, epilepsy in athletes, MS, uh, multiple sclerosis in athletes, and other, you know, really any neurologic condition, muscle disorders as well uh, that can occur in athletes just like the general population but helping them perform better in their sport is really the focus of sports neurology um, and managing those conditions uh, with their their neurologic problem uh, are you as surprised as i am about athletes who have now reached really the highest level of their sport whether it be marathon running playing professional football hockey basketball who have chronic neurologic problems that probably in the past would have sidelined them Yes, uh, I do see, you know, that, that that's definitely, there's a need for sports neurology, I feel, in, in any real sport or any level of performance like that, because uh, for athletes that have those conditions, they would have probably been told by any other provider sure. to just shut it down and, and you can't do it, you know. And we see all the time that there are these stories of, of athletes that can really at- reach high levels of of, of uh, achievement in their sport and you know the special olympics and and such things so it really is uh important to to have that uh awareness and to have you know access to a sports neurologist uh we're chatting today with my guest dr stephanie alessi larosa she is the associate director of sports neurology at the hartford Healthcare and uh, specifically at the iron neuroscience center at hartford hospital phone numbers here 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today we're talking about sports neurology with my daughter, Dr. Stephanie Alessi LaRosa, who is uh, here from the IRE Neuroscience Institute at Hartford HealthCare. Uh, Steph, uh, we were talking a little bit about concussion and other sports, but let's really get down to it. The biggest question we get on a regular basis has been youth sports. Parents concerned about their children having repetitive head injuries and possibly leading to cognitive deficits and really wanting their children to steer away from high-velocity collision sports. I often use the analogy that when it came to football, Moms didn't want their sons to play football, and dads did. And dads always won the argument for some reason. But that has changed. I mean, since this new information comes out, we're talking about concussions, CTE. Moms are winning the argument. 
And that's apparent because the numbers for youth football are down repeatedly by 10% almost every year. So where do we stand on this one, Steph? I feel that with youth level sports, you know, that really is the age uh, before high school. So uh, I find that at that age, collision sports and, and the contact sport world is is really a problem uh, because the brain is still developing in these children. Um, you know, it actually develops, you know, through age 20 or so. But but really, at this level, it's, it's a problem. So I don't recommend, you know, that they participate in tackle football or, you know, uh, checking and hockey and things like that um, until after high, you know, once high school begins. That's really the soonest uh, that, that I would say would be um, allowable, although not ideal. Uh, and, you know, it's it's a real problem because uh, there's plenty of other sports to do. There's, there's, you know, you don't also want your child to be specializing in a sport um, early on because it can lead to uh, tons of, uh, you know, injuries. And uh, so to prevent injuries and not just head injuries uh, by reducing their, their contact to the head, uh, you also want to have them p- participate in multiple sports um, and, you know, uh, not, again, specializing in one specific sport. So uh, it really is a problem um, at the youth level. And, and I find, you know, parents want their kids to start sports earlier and earlier and, and get their careers kind of going, right? Um, but it's it doesn't always work out that way. And then you're at a higher risk of, of tons of injuries. Um when we talk about all right steering away from specialization i mean a lot of people have this vision of their children playing at the highest level if we take football for example right everyone thinks their child is going to get to the nfl oddly enough the people who have really been most successful in the nfl haven't played youth football mm-hmm. do you find that surprising not to me, but I know to the general population, people find that very surprising that, you know, they think that, uh, you know, the, the Mannings and, and such all started early, uh, but they really didn't. They started in high school, uh, you know, and, and that that's acceptable. And, and the earlier you start, the earlier your career will end. So uh, you, you really have to be, uh, you know, smart about it. Um, let's get, to, let's switch over to soccer. We hear a lot about the increasing numbers of women who play soccer having concussion. I think it's the highest number of concussions per sport. Mm-hmm. Is um, Have you found that, and and why is that? Yeah, I do find that, especially with uh, the female population, that uh, they do get more concussions with, with soccer. Um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, females in general, you know, there's sex differences uh, with concussion and, you know, females are more likely to get migraines in general. So, you know, that's a that's a piece of the puzzle. But they also have weaker necks than uh, males do. Um, and so the, the neck is really important, um, you know, for for preventing the force imparted to the brain. Um, and so there's a number of of of, you know, factors really but uh i definitely feel that you know and and girls play aggressively too you know people don't think about that but definitely the goalie position i find in in soccer is is a big one uh for concussions there's collisions you know all kinds of things head to ground um injuries as well um so i don't know that we have one specific reason for it but uh it definitely is 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 true um differences between uh, men and women who play sports. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that it takes longer for women to make a comeback. Um, is that what is the physiology behind that? People have thought about 
brain structure, neuronal structure? Mm -hmm. um, is it hormonal? What do you think? I definitely think that there's a there's certainly a hormone difference between males and females. So I do think that that is a factor. Uh, there hasn't been. Uh, specific research or literature to really say that. Um, but <clears throat> we know that about females, that they're physiologically different. Um, so I would say it's hormonal. Also, again, that whole neck um, structure, or, you know, musculature really is, is different uh, to the neck, which, which can be really important uh, for imparting forces to the brain and controlling that. Um, so neck strengthening is really important. And um, so I find that those are probably the biggest things and, you know, skills and however long they've practiced or, or played, you know, for and stuff is, is really important and in, in being aware of how to protect themselves. Uh, are you surprised at how many athletes? So people come to us often having seen other doctors and they're out of their sport for months to years. Are you surprised at how many we send back because we find they had another problem that had nothing to do with a brain injury? Yes. I find that that's, it, it's kind of crazy and scary to me how people can be out of their sport for so long for what you know the team thought was one reason and then is actually a totally separate, fixable, treatable, preventable other reason. Um, and then that athlete could have been playing for all that time, um, you know, and it really is a, is a is a problem and it's a hardship for the athlete. You know, they they're wired to be active and they're not active. And, you know, it really becomes a, a problem for their overall health and brain health in particular, especially for young athletes, because it's kind of their social outlet. It's theirs. Their, it's all their friends um, had a case this week similar to that. Somebody who was seen um, told they shouldn't play. They should stay out, having headaches, stay out. So missed like a year and a half of her sport, developed depression uh, as a result of that because she felt isolated from her friends, has been playing the sport for a long time. And they were, you know, shocked when I gave her some migraine treatment and sent her back. Mm -hmm. So uh, I guess that's become more typical right now. Yeah, I find that that's common that there's always a there's some level of misdiagnosis. So the first thing I always do when I see patients is to really revisit the diagnosis. Is this what they think it is? Let me make my own decision and rehash everything um to really be thoughtful about it and not to miss something that that is treatable and easy and, you know, could get that athlete back quick. Let's talk a little bit about imaging the brain. CT, MRI, a lot of people come into the office or think if I got hit in the head, I need an imaging study. We're also seeing, especially in young people, more exposure to radiation, more exposure to cancer. Uh, what are your feelings about when you image the brain or not? Uh, it's really a clinical decision. So you must evaluate the patient first. So it really is a discussion of what were the events going on, what happened uh, with the hit, what was the mechanism of the injury, and then how has that patient done since the injury, have they worsened, uh, you know, steadily or was there a period of improvement and then kind of a plateau, you know, sort of that clinical course really is, is key um, because certainly if they're worsening or getting new symptoms, that is a reason to get an image um, because you'd be fearful of something other than concussion, more like a hemorrhage or a slow bleed or, or some structural injury. Uh, but if it's a straightforward, you know, concussion uh, clinically, then, um, you know, there really is not a great reason to expose them to those things. What do you like to do as an imaging study in particular? Uh, I do prefer MRI of the brain. Um, 
basically with and without contrast. And I, I like to do specific sequences for uh, looking at what we call micro hemorrhages, which are small, small bleeds um, that would not be picked up by a CAT scan. And um, it's on susceptibility weighted imaging um, uh, of an MRI. And uh, this will tell us if there's ever been, you know, hemorrhage or, or damage over time to the brain or, um, you know, damage to specific structures in the brain, uh, such as the axons, uh, which, are, which are the long, the long threads of, of neurons. Um, and uh, essentially, uh, the other type of image I like to do is what's called DTI or um, diffusion tensor imaging which looks at those tracks and looks at those axons specifically um, to see how they're communicating with each other and traveling through the brain. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to get back with my guest, Dr. Stephanie Alessi-LaRosa. Uh, we're going to talk about the treatment of concussion. How do you treat a concussion? We're going to talk about CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, something that we hear a lot about um, in people who have had repetitive head injuries. Is it a real fear or not? You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Back on Healthy Rounds, I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and we're wrapping it up here in the last segment of uh, today's program. Uh, my guest is my daughter, Dr. Stephanie Alessi LaRosa, who's an MD and uh, has a master's degree in public health. She's the Associate Director of Sports Neurology at Hartford Healthcare and the Iyer Neuroscience Institute. Steph, we're just starting to talk a little bit about youth sports and concussion. But, uh, you know, concussion is kind of an ill-defined syndrome more than anything. How do you go about treating it? I mean, when, when a patient comes in, what are some of the treatments you use for their problem? So certainly it, it requires a... Uh thorough evaluation um, of their history of what happened, uh, of their brain health history in general. So how well hydrated they are, what's their sleep like, um, have they had prior head injuries, have they had, um, you know, prior imaging of the brain, you know, all of that stuff, um, and what sports they play, et cetera, to know what kind of impacts uh, they have taken to, to their head. Um, so a thorough history, then a thorough family history. So it's really important to discuss with the athlete about, you know, is anybody in their family have migraines? Does anybody have depression? Does anybody have ADHD? You know, if, if those things genetically exist in their, in their milieu, uh, if you will, then, um, you know, that's important to know. And uh, then I do a thorough neurologic exam, um, spending a lot of time on eye movements, uh, a lot of time on uh, balance, coordination, et cetera. Um, to really get a full picture of what's going on. Uh, the treatment itself, you know, once the diagnosis is made, although in terms of diagnosing concussion, uh, it's important to keep in mind that we don't grade them anymore. That was something that used to be done, uh, grading concussion. And now we use a classification of um, the certainty of the diagnosis, basically. So we consider it a possible concussion, a probable concussion, or a definite concussion. And uh, this just helps us to know, you know, it characterizes the type of hit that they took um, and the uh, level of, of symptoms that they've had um, since the injury. So the, the certainty of the diagnosis is important. And then the treatment really uh, is very individualized. So it's not a cookie-cutter treatment, um, unlike what, what a lot of uh, schools and teams are, are, are doing is kind of plugging people into what's called a protocol, you know. Uh, that word is... 
probably one of the biggest pet peeves I have um, in in treatment of concussion because it should not be a protocol. It really is a process, um, and it's individualized. So it should include, uh, you know, treatment of symptoms, managing their um, routine, so getting them back on their normal routine of sleep, their normal routine um, of uh, you know, whatever activities they can tolerate. Uh, and that's the key word is what they can tolerate, not necessarily um, just shutting people down and putting them in a dark room for no reason. If they can tolerate some sunlight, if they can tolerate walking around their house, then they should be doing those things, uh, especially when it comes to school. If they can tolerate going to school even for a half day, they should do that. Um, so that, so that's important to, to really individualize their, their treatment and, um, you know, using non-steroidal anti-inflammatories as needed um, and, and keeping a close watch. So following up closely is really important as well. I hear of a lot of, you know, uh, concussion clinics, you know, quote unquote, and uh, a lot of them will see you back in, you know, two weeks. It's not really an injury that you should go that long without being seen again. You really need to keep a close watch on it. Um, I like to see patients back within the first week um, for a second visit um, to make sure we're moving in the right direction. Otherwise, you know, there's there's things that we need to course correct, et cetera. So it's a, it's a very dynamic exam. It's a very dynamic treatment process. Uh, do you find people are surprised when we use kind of the so-called nature-suiticals like magnesium oxide, vitamin B2, um, to really help not just with concussion but with headache? Yeah, I find people are, are thrilled, actually. I have a ton yeah. of patients who prefer to not use any medication if they can. And so to hear that, that there's an option and that, you know, it's actually a very effective option, um, you know, to use magnesium oxide or to use uh, vitamin B2 or riboflavin is the other name uh, to treat their light sensitivity or sound sensitivity or their migraines um, from, from the head injury uh, is is really great for them. All right. Listen, we have uh, a question. Let's try to grab a question here. Uh, we have Louise. Louise is on the line. Louise, welcome to the show. Uh, yes, I was just wondering if you have any answers to a mystery in my life. About 40 years ago, before I was married, I had a skating accident. I was really whammed and, land, you know, hit my head and was unconscious, had a seizure for a short time. They checked me out. And um, that was okay, you know, did testing. Then a few years later, I had some kind of um, uh, poisoning, food poisoning from bad chicken or something. Anyway, and I, I, got, I was sick for three days, vomiting and all that. And then I was on my way to work, and I lost consciousness. And by the grace of God, I wasn't killed. My car crossed the road. I hit some bushes. I don't remember even getting hurt. And um, an EMT happened to go by, checked me out, thought it was my heart, but I was in seizures. And then I started having seizures every once in a while. My mother had, a, had epilepsy. But I don't know if, uh, and they, and they get, took, um, uh, you know, sleeping, um, EKG or something, whatever, um, you know, different tests so long ago. But I don't think it was ever conclusive. Could mm. there have been a connection from that hit years before and then this, this um, poisoning. Mm. Okay. Never found out. 
Want to give a quick answer yeah, here, Steph, because so we're running out of time. It seems like, uh, you know, typically that's, uh, it can be, seizures can be developed from uh, from head injuries. If it was a severe TBI, for example, then that would be a reason to develop epilepsy from that. But if you have a family history, like you said, of epilepsy, you may have just coincidentally developed epilepsy um, because of that, not because of the head injury. So, uh, which is probably more likely, but again, I, I wouldn't know just from this conversation, but I think that, you know, those are important things to to note is really that there could be from head injury or from your family history so well, so there are reasons it continued for a little while and then i was put on medication i weaned myself off of it oh. and was fine after that well okay well that's great i mean well, it's hard to say but I, I really do think that that's that's important i'm glad you called louise thanks for calling in okay. and i think you know she brings up a good point because you know there's a lot of regenerative ability and resilience of the human brain um, that we find in people who have injury like this. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, with the head injuries, I mean, they regenerate uh, over time, you know, especially severe TBI and moderate TBI out of the spectrum of concussion, um, you know, is, is pretty amazing. But there's there can be long-term damage from, from certainly those types of injuries. Uh, we have a little less than a minute. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy, <laughs> CTE, big discussion, big debate. What should people know in the last 30 seconds? CTE is a diagnosis made post-mortem, so after death. It's not something you can have in life, despite what you see on the Internet. It really is not something that you can say, oh, I have symptoms of CTE. That's not possible because uh, it can only be diagnosed after death. If you're suffering from depression, suffering from suicidal thoughts, uh, suffering from um, anything uh, related to mood or memory, you should be seen by a sports neurologist um, to to help with that and, and not consider it CTE right away. Steph, great job. I don't have to tell you how proud I am and your mom is of everything you've accomplished, both you and your sister Catherine, um, in the field of neurology and especially in this newest uh, presentation um, at uh, the Iron Neuroscience Institute. Uh, thanks for coming down today. Thank you very much. Um, with that, uh, next week on our program, um, we're going to have Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford come in. As uh, many of you know, she is an ophthalmologist. We're going to be talking a lot about the eye. I want to get some questions answered about color blindness because I'm always hearing about people with these special glasses being able to see again. So we're going to talk about cataracts, color blindness, things such as that. Many thanks to our studio producer, Mike Ulko, has been on the board today. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. You can also download the Healthy Rounds podcast if you missed any of today's program just by going to iTunes. Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.